From the studios of the Optimism Institute, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Burke, and in every Blue Sky episode, we'll be speaking to leaders, researchers, and thinkers whose stories and insights will remind us that there is always blue sky above. Sometimes you just have to get your head above the clouds to see it. My guest today is a remarkable and infectiously optimistic person. Jeru Billamoria is a serial social entrepreneur whose work has impacted the lives of millions of children around the world. She was born in Mumbai, India, and is a founder of a number of global impact-driven businesses, mainly focusing on youth empowerment. Her passion for social entrepreneurship can be traced back to her childhood, as her parents were deeply committed to creating positive impact through their social work. Following in their footsteps, Jeru has founded several high-impact social ventures, including Childline, Child Helpline International, One Family Foundation, and most recently, Catalyst 2030. These efforts have made Jeru well-known around the world, and her recognitions have included the Social Entrepreneurship Award from the Skoll Foundation, as well as Ashoka and Schwab Fellowships. Jeru was kind enough to interrupt her vacation for our Blue Sky conversation, and I'm thankful that she did. I really enjoyed speaking with her. Jeru Billamoria, welcome to the Blue Sky Podcast. Hi, thanks. It's lovely to be with you, Bill. And tell me where we, where I'm finding you today. You are finding me on, actually on vacation and somewhere on the outskirts of Paris. Very nice. And where is home for you now? Home for me is the Netherlands, yes. again in a small village outside of Amsterdam. Yes. Uh, and we'll get more to your upbringing soon. But I wanted to jump right in with a question because this is coming to you from the studios of the Optimism Institute. And I read an interview with you recently, and you described yourself as a firm optimist. Can you tell me what being a firm optimist means to you? The glass is always full. That's it for me. I have never understood why people will say, but you can't do this. Maybe you can't do it by A, you do it by B. So essentially, the glass is always full. My teacup is always full, either with tea or with air. (laughs) And that's it to me. I love either with tea. There's never a problem. There's always a solution. And it's just a thousand ways which lead to Rome. There you go. So you're living in, in the Netherlands now, but you were born in Bombay to parents. You're, as I re- understand it, your father was an accountant, your mom a social worker, which to me seems almost like the perfect genetics to produce Giroux. But I, I read a, a beautiful story that your father died young and I'm, I'm sorry for that loss. You were, you were 18, very impressionable time in your life. And you found at his funeral that he, unbeknownst to you, was a very quiet philanthropist. You learned that from the turnout. Can you tell that story and, and the, describe the impact that had on you? Um, my father was amazing to start with. And um, it was he who taught me that life is all about optimism because he was the one who was very unwell for many years and was always still smiling and caring and helping. So my mom was the social worker and he thoroughly encouraged her in doing what she did because he thought it was important. But we as a family never knew that, you know, in India, when you live in an apartment complex, even if you walk on the streets, there are people who are living families. 
And whenever my father took a walk or he went to the strain or whatever, he always talked to everybody. And if they had problems, I learned he helped them. I also learned he helped everyone in the building. And I never knew any of this and the building surrounding. And I never knew any of this until all of them came to pay his respects. And the three things they said, they said he was kind. He took the time to talk to us. And whenever we had trouble, he was there to help us. All of us knew you need to have to go to, as they would say, Sergi, to help solve a problem. So this is what I learned from him, and this is what guides me. Amazing. And he also, so based on that, it sounds like he had a very uh, intact uh, ego. He would, did not have a huge ego. And you, you said something, you're a remarkable entrepreneur, and we'll get to that. But you said something that I think goes counter to most people's impressions, when they think of entrepreneurs, they're bigger than life, they're big egos. But you said, and I love your direct language, if you want to be a successful entrepreneur, take your ego, flush it down the toilet and start. Tell me why that's important to you. Because whom are you doing the work for? Are you doing it for yourself and self-aggrandization? Are we doing it to help people? So again, my parents, and I do think I'm very blessed to have the parents I had. Uh, so I really want to say that. Um, but my parents always taught me that you're in this world to help and then to go. So they always believe that when you go to sleep at night, ask yourself one question. How many people have I made smile? How many people have I helped? And I think that's what I really believe in and try to do. And being a Zoroastrian, the core that I have is good thoughts, good words, and good deeds. So these are the two questions and the philosophy for me. That's beautiful. So other influences on your life, as I understand it, is spending time very proximate to the homeless. Um, you did that at the New School, I believe, in New York. You've also done that in the streets of, of India. And I'd love to hear about the impact that had on you. And you said something that I think would surprise people you said that you learned your optimism from street children. Oh, definitely. And the sense of bindas. I always say that. At some stage, I'm going to write a book on bindas. But anyway, uh, bindas is the carefree spirit. Street kids have a really tough life. Let me be clear. You know, because they're on the streets because something's gone wrong with their families or something. They still go on. And what I really admired and learned from them is they learned to have fun with what little they had. Dancing in the rain. Lots of joy doing just that, you know. Or watching a movie from a shop window and laughing and talking about that or saving and doing so. I really learned the most important thing. You don't need too much, you know, to be happy and to be able to love and to share. And I really, my street kids taught me even if you had one rupee, you could share 50 cents with another street kids. So I really don't understand why everyone constantly goes on about things and whines. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> no, I appreciate that. No, and, and you also said, I think there's an interesting movement, at least in the United States, I'm sure it's elsewhere, the sort of this happiness movement and how do you constantly find happiness? couple of lines I like about that. Sometimes people have said that the best way to be happy is not to stop and wonder if you are. Uh, but another Honestly, is, don't think yeah, too much. You said... It, be in the moment. Yeah. No, and you also said, if you don't 
experience unhappiness, you can't understand happiness. And it seems to me that's that's part of what you learn from kids living on the street. Obviously, there's plenty of unhappiness in their lives, but they embrace the goodness. Exactly. And and again, you know, I go back to my cup of tea, which I'm having as I talk to you. And there is tea and then there is air. And sometimes there's more tea, sometimes there's more air. Sometimes life gives you a lot of joy for which you have to be grateful. And sometimes it gives you the obstacles which may frustrate you, but then you go on, you know. And I'm not saying I don't get frustrated, angry, upset, blah, blah, blah. But you have to just look at the big picture and thank God or bless, you know, be grateful for what you have. It's really beautiful to hear Jeru speak of the profound impact her parents had on her. It was particularly sweet to learn how the painful loss of her father led to her discovery of what a quiet contributor he was to his surrounding community. His lack of ego was clearly passed down to Giroux, as was her mother's drive to constantly work on helping others. I love the question, how many people have I made smile today and how many people have I helped? And in a culture where we tend to focus on the pursuit of material enrichment, it's great to hear Jeru speak of the optimism she learned from street kids, danced in the rain, and found joy in watching TVs through a shop window. I next asked Jeru to talk some more about her career. And if you think you hear birds in the background, don't worry, you do. Jeru was speaking to me from a porch outside her hotel room in her typical laid-back fashion. Let's get to your work because it is so impressive. Um, and you described earlier in your life, you realized that you, you can run established things. You, you know, you're, you're a good administrator, but you, what you really get you going is starting things. And I, I think the first big thing, big enterprise you started was Childline. Would that be accurate? Uh, around 1996. And I, I know how old you are. You are a young person to be starting something so ambitious. Can you tell us about Childline, how you got the idea, how you built it? I don't claim to have the idea because I also say there's no new idea in the world. So I followed my kids when they said that social workers are there nine to five and they needed someone after hours also. So Childline was a response to saying that there's someone who cares 24 hours for you. So I give the idea totally to the street kids who said they wanted something. And also because they kept calling my house all the time when they wanted something. <laughs> so I think it was a two-way process, you know. And and describe it to folks listening who don't know what Childline became. Um, Childline started as a phone service for street kids by street kids. Uh, it soon evolved into a phone service for all kids. So we had calls from children who had child labor, other issues, mental health issues, the whole gamut. So it went across all issues and today it's in almost every district of India and we took the concept, uh, shared the concept with other countries and then Child Helpline International was formed, which actually today uh, we started in 2006. So yeah, so I think it's 25 years of Child Helpline and um, 17th May today's Helpline's Day. So it's in 134 countries and has responded cumulatively to more than 20 million phone calls 
Oh, yeah. And describe these phone calls. So a child is in distress. It depends on the country. It depends on the country. In the U.S., if a child is in distress, um, um, they can call. Or if a child is having, like, feeling very lonely, they can call. They can also call if they have girlfriend, boyfriend problems. So it depends. It's it, They can call if they are sick and on the streets. They can... You as an adult can call if you see a child being in an abusive situation on behalf of the child because that's how you spot domestic child labor, child labor cases. At one point in Africa, we had a lot of children calling for HIV AIDS because the parents had died. So it really depends on the situation and the country and what is the need of the hour. And when the child so, calls, who's on the other end of the line? Again, depends on the country. In some countries, there are volunteers. In other countries, there are teen counsel uh, peer counselors. So it depends on the country. Uh, but there's always someone to answer who has got training. And it may be and can either, depending on the model of the country, provide immediate response or refer them to a counselor who can help counsel. And during COVID, the amount of calls for child helplines uh almost uh, doubled for mental health issues, especially in Europe sure. and U.S. Wow. <laughs> so so that was you founded that many years ago. Are you still very active there? I know you've moved on to many other things that I'd like to talk to you about. So when you launch something, you set it free and, and have other folks in charge? And I have no role in either Childline or Child Healthline International. I'm neither on the board nor anything, but they are all very kind to me. So they invite me to the meetings, they call me, they chat. So they're very kind. I never ask, but they always share. And I think that's also very important. Don't ask and breathe right. down. So I wait when for them to away, share. When you step away, step away. I believe in that as well. Another organization you helped found, and I don't know if I'll pronounce this correctly, Aflatoon? Aflatoon? Aflatoon, yeah. Aflatoon, I got it right. Can you just describe that? That was subsequent to Childline. My understanding is, Childline opened your eyes even more to the to the struggles of poverty and the importance of, of poverty alleviation with kids. Can you ex describe what that organization is all about? Aflatun is all about believing in yourself and about knowing about money and learning to save and run a microenterprise as a child so you have the life skills. Because if the kids had that, including my street, they wouldn't be where they are. So uh, with Aflatoon, it's all about what they call, what we call social and financial education or economic citizenship. And um, that's what um, works very well for the children. And the idea, again, I take no credit for it. It came from kids. Um, this one came because I had another project called Mail Joel, where we used to interact rich kids with poor kids and we worked in rural areas. And... Uh, the children in the rural area said, like, they were, fifth, I think, 60 kilometers from Bombay, but had never visited. And they, I was like, and they all wanted to go. And I said, why didn't, you know, what is the reason that's stopping? I just asked it as an open-ended question. And they said, because we never have the money. And of course, because they were very poor and they're like, we don't have. So I said, what about if you save? You know, I'd ask, what is your biggest dream, sort of? And that was to visit Bombay. I said, what about if you save? But they said, we don't have money to save. So I said, you all have a school garden. Why don't we start doing something in the school garden? So sort of started a micro enterprise, got them to save money from that, plan as a whole class, and then go visit. But 
I'm talking of one instance, but you can imagine thousands of schools. I think there were a million enterprises done by Aflatoon at one stage. So it's it it grows, and that's children are learning a life skill and learning to be independent. And I and now, yeah, through the next organization, Child and Youth Finance International, we took it at the policy level and included in policies. So I think that's what's important. Well, tell me about that last, the, taking it international, because as you describe this, this is something that's so applicable, certainly in the United States, we have same issues. Yes, so Aflatoon is, I, I'm i not in day-to-day touch, so I apologize if I don't need the exact number, but I think in 116 countries, and it reaches directly to 16 million children a year. Uh, but when they were, because we have done policy shifts, they work through the governments, and through that they put it into the education curriculum and reach around 33 or 35 million kids a year. So now, if I have it right, you're spending a lot of your time with Catalyst 2030, and I've talked in other podcasts with folks about the UN Development Goals and where we've missed and where we're hitting, and can you describe what why Catalyst 2030 was formed and what it's all about? Catalyst 2030 was formed by leading social innovators from across the world. We all used to meet at gatherings with Ashoka or Skoll World Forum or the Schwab Foundation, which had its annual events. And many of us, um, I think most of us, I think, were um, had started one or two enterprises. And we were realizing we had a glass ceiling with our own enterprises. So we thought, what if we come together, then we could do much, much more together. And that's what we strive to do. So Catalyst is the coming together. I'd say we have 80 to 100 founders. So yeah, so that's a large because everyone bought into the idea. The strategy plan was co-created. And now we have 2000 plus members and it's really a community for social entrepreneurs, by social entrepreneurs, and it's phenomenal. I don't say I'm the only person behind it at all. Our members, it's totally member-driven. It's incredible. One of the things I, I admire about the social entrepreneurship movement, which, by the way, is not, a, it's not an old thing. It, that was, this is a concept that's probably 30 or so years old. You were on the very cutting edge when you got involved. But one of the things I love about it is there's always, it seems, this um, collaboration that doesn't happen. You wouldn't get a hundred you know, tech leaders necessarily getting on a call to help each other grow, but you get it with social entrepreneurship. Can you talk about the impact and the importance of that? Yeah. So it, as you know, the term was coined by Bill Drayton from Ashoka all those years, I think 30 or 40 years back now. And um, uh, social entrepreneurs, actually the reason we formed Catalyst is because everyone told us that social entrepreneurs won't work together. So we wanted to disprove that exact myth. So in our theory of change, we put one pillar and we said that is on collaboration. And we are going to try to, you know, disprove because it's pretty much in our DNA to want to work together. So we said, let's just do it. And Catalyst is three and a half years old. And at last count, we have more than 125 collaborations. And they are being run by different entrepreneurs across. And I'm not talking about the bilateral collaborations with Apple. I'm talking about collaborations which have come together, you know. 
by multiple entrepreneurs. Well, and it goes back to what you said earlier about ego. If you and focusing on why you're doing the work you're doing. If you set your ego aside and say, "I'm doing this to to help people," you're going to collapse. Exactly, it seems yeah. to me. And that's what the social entrepreneurs do. And I, I think our members are a unique bunch. I guess they self-select because their their very mindset is to collaborate. So if you're Uh, someone who believes in collaboration then catalyst is the place where you come you find your peers and then you know they say birds of a feather flock together so there yes yeah childline has been a remarkable success and a few things struck me as i learned more about it the first is that it's based on a very simple technology the cell phone and a basic premise that kids in trouble should have an easy way to reach out for a trained helper. And notice how Jeru dismisses taking any credit for this. Her father would no doubt be very proud. She could have stopped at Childline but instead identified financial literacy as important for kids, so she launched Afflatoon. And now, Catalyst 2030 is bringing together social entrepreneurs and optimistic change makers from all over the world. and there's no telling what kind of global impact will come from these exciting collaborations. Now, back to my conversation with Jeru Villamoria. The UN Development Goals, um it's come up in a few of my conversations. They when they were put together, very inspirational for people, very aspirational. Uh and I think the original target was to reach the goals in 2015. I think where there's the millennium that goals. was the millen- that was okay. the millennium development goals. okay yeah. so these are these are subsequent to that yes what are, and it's a long list of goals i believe what what are there some of the ones that you personally are most passionate about or, and working most directly on would you say i catalyst first across all the goals and all the targets a member is doing one at least and much more i would say uh, personally um education is something that interests me a lot of course child protection interests me a lot uh, more and more i'm learning about uh, regenerative economies and all of that so that's interesting me so i think it's a it's a pretty broad range refugees uh, so there's a whole taxation that's my new hobby horse yeah 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 so different things interest yeah Wait, let's talk some more about taxation. What about taxation has sparked your interest? Um, well, a few things. One is my learning that we have a UN, we have something for telecoms for everything, but we don't have a global taxation authority. So, let's first start to create that because more than half a trillion dollars in taxation is lost in just because of seepages across The other thing is if we could unify on tax norms across the world uh, I think we would actually we don't need the 2.5 trillion deficit which is there for the SDGs and I'm not talking about individual tax I think that is not where I'm going I'm saying if we streamline the system if we looked at corporate tax differently if we looked at externalities tax we won't be putting a burden on the regular taxpayer who's already paying enough but we would be correcting huge systems failures which are there and trying to 
shift the system to make it more equitable. That's really interesting. And I am not well versed in international tax issues, but I know that here in the United States, the amount of energy and effort that wealthy and corporations spend avoiding paying taxes is pretty remarkable. It's kind of an industry here. And if, uh, if everyone just could pay their fair share, whatever that is, and that's a debate, what is the fair share? But there is a lot of uh, there are a lot of loopholes and and dodges that people exercise. So it sounds like that's something that sparked your interest. It'll be interesting to see the work you do there. Yeah. I'm probably going to fail at it. <laughs> I'll start with that. Come on. So I tell everybody this is my last probably, and I'm nine out of ten going to fail because it's such a huge issue. But I have nothing to lose. I'm 58 almost. So why not try something totally different for which I have almost no knowledge? I love it. <laughs> what, and you know what? That's that's how you keep a smile. Right now you have a big smile on your face. That's how you do it, I think, as you get older. You keep finding new challenges, right? Yes, that's, yeah. I know that's and what I'm trying to do. You're never going to, exactly. And I, I'm also very realistic that there's 0.001% I'll make a dent. <laughs> I'm going to try. I want to put it at a higher percentage than that. One of the things um, that, that I think comes up in your work, and you mentioned 2030 and the number of people involved and how you get together. One of the things I believe is important to have an optimistic outlook is to be grateful for things. And one of the things I'm increasingly grateful for are some of these basic, what now feel like basic technologies. I'm talking to you. You're in the outskirts of Paris. Uh, I'm in the East Coast of the United States. We're looking at each other. We're hearing each other. I'm going to put this podcast out on the internet and anyone in the world can listen to it. Technology is something we've been taking for granted and, and a lot of people fear and get pessimistic about. Can you talk about how technology has enabled a lot of your work? Going all the way back, frankly, to Childline. I mean, phones are a basic technology, but they weren't around forever. Can you talk about that? Yeah, I really love tech i'm terrible at technology as you just saw connecting was so <laughs> we had a little trouble getting connected with drew this morning but here we are we made it yeah so i'll start with ha having said that i really think technology plays a key role in shaping society and in helping us so with child helplines we could when we started we were among the first where tata consultancy was testing you know voice over ip to check how calls are going. So I'm talking about years and when it was new, but that helped us to learn quality control. Technology helps to look at where the calls are coming from, to track the kind of calls. One of the organizations which I helped start with another entrepreneur, Jim Fructiman, is a cello, which looks at technology to be able to calculate the data for everything. You know, so we know real time what the types of calls are coming and all. It's rolled out only in 16 countries. We need it much more. But I think that's something which is important. The other thing which is uh, really important in technology, I actually love chat GPT. You know, and I, I know there are lots of issues and there are lots of problems, but I do think that. Uh, it helps you to improve your efficiency in different ways. So I've been trying to push my team to see how we can look at it to make data more easily accessible to entrepreneurs on the phone. Because many, many of our members who are in rural areas just have 3G connectivity. So we are trying to see how to take it so that quick responses can come right on WhatsApp to them for everything. So sort of taking the next level. So my whole thing is technology is great. You adapt it to the extent, but be careful of 
the negative impacts of technology also. Sure. Yeah. And, and ChatGPT is interesting. You mentioned you can't have a conversation these days. It doesn't involve AI. And, and you know, I, I, I had a great conversation with Kevin Kelly, who you may be familiar with, and he he's very much a technophile. And he feels like, a lot, first of all, he's like, we're just at the very start of this. This is, you know, very, you know, it's going to look primitive years from now. But the things like ChatGPT, if we embrace them as sort of helpers, or almost like interns or assistants that free us up to do our more human only productive work, it could be a great thing. And, and we've had other things we take for granted now, GPS, you know, that's, that's an assistant. I used to have to think really hard about how I was going to get from my house to your house and get all these directions and write them down. Now it's what's your address and off I go. So if we can embrace them those ways, I think it's an optimistic way to approach the future. And it still gave a lot of employment to programmers to take you from A to B, which would otherwise have been you. But now that will be done by chat GPT. So we'll have to find out what else has to happen and, and, and. Right. And right. And new opportunities and jobs will be created. Kevin also is, he's more optimistic than anyone I've spoken to about it, not eliminating jobs. I read somewhere, someone said, you're not going to lose your a, your job to AI. You're going to, you might lose your job to someone using AI better than you are. <laughs> and, you know, so, so embrace it and figure it out. But obviously we need to be mindful of it all the negatives. The yeah, sure. And the stereotypes, which are in AI, which is also a bit scary. I've mentioned in previous Blue Sky episodes that one of the patterns I see across my guests is that they all seem to be continuous learners. Here, we see that Giroux's early work centered on the welfare of children, but now she's talking about regenerative agriculture and, of all things, global taxation policy. She also reminds me of other previous guests with their open-mindedness to new technologies, like ChatGPT, seeing the potential to create efficiencies rather than dreading the potential negatives that could come along down the road. Now back to our conversation. One of the things I loved about researching you is that you obviously have done big, grand things and, you know, Catalyst 2030, but you're also a big advocate for small ripples. And it sounds now that I know more about your dad's story, you know, the saying hello to people, the small acts of kindness. Can you talk about what you see as the importance of that in our society? Okay, I'm going back to my spiritual roots, and I'm not religious in that sense. I have three religions in my house, so please, this is not about religion, okay? My husband's Catholic, I'm Zoroastrian, my kids are Hindu, so very clearly, three different religions. Um, Having said that, one of the tenets which I really value about Zoroastrianism is what I said earlier, good thoughts, good words, good deeds. And what I value from Hinduism are the concepts of karma and dharma, which is your activities and do your duty. And that is it. And I think in day-to-day life, we can make it very intellectual or we can make it very, very simple, you know. And my whole thing is good thoughts is, yes, just try to remove the negativity. So every time I'm going in a negative spiral, my husband will say, hey, you know, and he's phenomenal. So he'll say, hey, you need to, um, you know, you're going into a negative spiral, get off it. Or just just the basics, I always say you need to smile, give someone food, talk to them. You always have time for that. Everything else will come later. 
and it makes you feel good. I, I read something recently. The uh, the headline I think was the uh, something like uh, the selfish reasons to be kind to others, and basically it was about how great it makes you feel. <laughs> Obviously, it has an impact on the person you're being kind to, and it just feels good. Yes. Life is a two-way stream, right? Everything is a two-way stream. So I, I always say that. What you give is what you get. Yes. And speaking of streams, there's another quote from you that I absolutely loved, and I think it, I think it helps describe uh, your life and your career and how you've been flexible and moved. So I, I read this somewhere. You said, and I'm quoting, you may not remember this, I always say that a river starts at the head of a mountain and it knows it has to reach the sea, but it goes this way and that, turning until it reaches its destination. That's what systems change is about. You go slowly and negotiate your way through. Can you elaborate on that? It's a beautiful quote. Uh, that's again one of my life philosophies. But um, for me, with systems change, we let's let's go on this whole thing, which I think I'll fail at, which is taxation, right? Um, I do think we need to be able to plug all the gaps that are there, and then we'll be able to finance the SDGs, okay? Am I going to achieve it on my own? No, for sure. You know, we'll have many, many people. Um, so when I started, I initially, self-criticism, I started thinking we could have two sorts of taxation and that could solve it. Then I spoke to people and I was talking about excessive luxury tax and I was talking about progressive corporate tax. When I started speaking to people and I started researching, they told me, yeah, but this is not going to help us meet all the targets. So can we look at something else? So then they said, why don't we look at this taxation authority? Then someone else came up with. So what I'm trying to say is I went on course A and if I'd stuck to course A, I may probably have achieved it but failed. But because I had all these amazing people I was speaking to, the idea is starting to grow. And I think there are so many people who know 10,000 times more than I do about it. But I think ultimately, hopefully, it won't be, it's definitely not going to be what I started out with as an idea, accepting that we need to do something with plugging this financing gap, but it will evolve into releasing more money into the system from different channels, which will help us achieve the SDG. So that's the ultimate goal, and it will go in many, many different directions. I th it's, it's amazing what you just said, because I think it also uh, describes a big challenge for entrepreneurs to understand, which is your business plan's all well and good, but once you get out there and start, and uh, one of the analogies I love, um, someone talked once about entrepreneurship, and they, they used a music analogy and there's, you know, a classical symphony, which is very tight and it's going to start here. It's going to be here in the middle. And it's going to end here. And he said, entrepreneurship is more like jazz and jazz. There's a, there, there's a core, there's a, there's a melody maybe that comes back, but it's looking at the other player and keying off the trombone and bringing in the piano and, and evolving as you go. Is that an analogy that's, that hits home for you? Totally. Absolutely. Very similar to the river. You know, you just take everyone along and the more ideas you take, uh, the richer you get, you know, because as the richer river flows, it's also fertilizing the soil. And that's why all civilizations started on riverbeds. 
so i always feel the richness of the flow and the journey is more important sometimes than the destination amazing frequent listeners of this podcast will know that i'm a big believer in the power of ripples that are started based on our actions and i enjoyed hearing jeru refer to these as well and how about the makeup of her household a catholic a zoroastrian and two hindus under the same roof Jeru and her family clearly have learned how to focus on the unifying core teachings of their different faiths. And what you give is what you get can be a simple motivator for getting out and helping others. And I wanted to underscore something Jeru mentioned about speaking to others to learn. This seems to me to be one of the great benefits of having Jeru's level of humility. Being humble enough to know what you don't know allows you to open up to others and learn from their expertise. I next asked Jeru about the COVID-19 pandemic, how it changed the world, and whether she saw any silver linings from what we've all experienced. Well, I'll start with what's really bothered me, hmm? other than the deaths and this thing, uh, was the inequalities which were so starkly highlighted in the COVID crisis. For me, I think that was something which was really, really upsetting and shocking. Hmm? So I think that's and i think at least for myself the takeaway was that i need to work much harder at doing something about the inequalities um i think we are getting out of the crisis and into the war which is i think impacted people worse because inflation has gone sky high and everything so i do think times are still very tough so it's almost like going from one crisis to another and i the optimist in me says i'm sure we'll emerge stronger from all of this the positive about covid because hey i'm the optimist right a better family time because you didn't have to travel as much so that was a blessing b i don't think catalyst would have been what it is if there wasn't covid because it got connectivity to the next level you know zoom became the you know zoom and all the online platforms sort of became just mainstream and everyone started connecting and someone which would not have happened if covid hadn't happened so i think that was the blessing from covid to make our world really a global village so i do think that has been a blessing yes so and and one of the few crises we've ever truly shared shared worldwide exactly right yeah and and back to technology um and taking it for granted i think every once in a while about what would covid or any pandemic have been like in the 1970s when i was growing up no internet how would any business how would how would we have gotten information disseminated how would we have stayed together I, you know it would have been a global depression it would have been i think it's hard to, it's hard to it's hard to think about it well for one i think there would have been many more deaths Absolutely. and that's what happened with the spanish flu if you remember and that's what sunk the world into the depression right so i think technology helped us not and the un bodies and all which were also created so if you learn the difference it helped us not sink into a depression but then we didn't expect a war which has then caused a lot of other issues you you've described uh the world as a family um and and the the collective impact is so much greater than and people doing it on their own 
what words would you have to share with our audience to inspire them and to create more Giroux Billamorias in the world who approach things with such optimism and such hope and uh, such positivity? I'd, I'd love to hear you. I know you, you, your ego is in check and I, you know, this doesn't have to be self-aggrandizing, but advice for others to follow in the kind of footsteps, footsteps of the kind of work you've done. I don't think my husband and kids would say, follow in my footsteps. They'll say, mom, you're too crazy. <laughs> <laughs> That's their standard thing. Um, but I would just say, enjoy life. You know, don't take yourself too seriously. I see my, you know, just please don't because... You're one in 10 billion. You know, I always say that So, if you take yourself seriously, just get real. So I think for myself, I'd say, don't take yourself too seriously. Enjoy life and find fun in the small pleasures, the flower going on the tree, you know, having a cup of tea on a terribly rainy day. Just enjoy. That's what I'd say. Well, Giroux, that is a great place to wrap up our conversation. And then spe- speaking of enjoying life, you're on vacation right now and you could have spent your time doing other things, but you were kind enough to join me today. And I just, I enjoyed researching for this interview and you're every bit the uh, upbeat and positive and amazing person I thought you'd be. And I, I can't thank you enough for everything you're doing and for spending time with me today on the Blue Sky Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. It's been a real pleasure talking to you and getting to know you, and I hope we continue our acquaintance. Absolutely. Thanks so much. Thank you. I appreciated what Drew said about the simple pleasures many of us rediscovered during the pandemic including better family time. And while Giroux was saddened to see the stark inequalities that the pandemic laid bare, she's using that energy to redouble her efforts to help out in the world. And to that end, she credits our lockdown lives with helping the world connect more efficiently. And the rapid growth of her new project, Catalyst 2030, is a great example of that. Jeru Billamoria is a remarkable human being, and I was really inspired and uplifted by our conversation. I hope you were too. If you liked what you heard today, please follow Blue Sky on your favorite podcast app and consider leaving us a review. You can also contact us directly through the Optimism Institute website, where you'll also find links to follow us on social media. Until next time, I'm the host of Blue Sky and founder of the Optimism Institute, Bill Burke. And I thank you for listening.